0: Great sight! This is awesome. I have been excited about this for the last month or so. We're celebrating two huge uh, events today. This is basically our one-year anniversary from getting, as John announced earlier, we were able to get back started having worship June the 7th last year, which was this Sunday last year. And This is also a huge day in American history. This is the 77th anniversary of D-Day great day. Um, the Lord has been sovereign throughout. If you would, please join with me on your scripture sheet or with your Bibles. Our passage this morning as we go through the gospel of John comes from chapter 6, verses 1 through 15. Please hear God's word. After this, Jesus went away to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, which is the Sea of Tiberias and a large crowd was following him because they saw the signs that he was doing on the sick. Jesus went up on the mountain, and there he sat down with his disciples. Now the Passover, the feast of the Jews, was at hand. Lifting up his eyes then and seeing that a large crowd was coming toward him, Jesus said to Philip, Where are we to buy bread so that these people may eat? He said this to test him, for he himself knew what he would do. Philip answered him, 200 denarii worth of bread would not be enough for each of them to get a little. One of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, There is a boy here who has five barley loaves and two fish, but what are they for so many? Jesus said, Have the people sit down. Now there was much grass in the place, so the men sat down, about 5,000 in number. Jesus then took the loaves, and when he had given thanks, he distributed them to those who were seated. So also the fish, as much as they wanted. And when they had eaten their fill, he told his disciples, gather up the leftover fragments, that nothing may be lost. So they gathered them up, and filled 12 baskets with fragments from the five barley loaves left by those who had eaten. When the people saw the sign that he had done, they said, This is indeed the prophet who is to come into the world. Perceiving then that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, Jesus withdrew to the mountain by himself. This is the infallible inerrant, comprehensive Word of God for the people of God.
1: Thanks be to God. Let's return to the Scripture we read with Bill a moment ago from John chapter 6 as we continue our study in the Gospel according to John. I have preached from this passage several times. One time here at Christ Presbyterian. And I was anxious to, I'm sure you remember it, it was about four and a half years ago. Uh, if anyone ra- wants to raise their hand, I'll call on you and you can tell everybody what it was. But so I come to this passage, having preached on it two or three times yet knowing that I have not yet even begun to plummets depths. And so this message this morning is something from that message uh, four years ago, something from a message before that uh, that was completely different on this passage, and uh, what I have seen uh, in the last month. In preparing for this message, let's pray together and ask the Father to teach us. Our Father, we thank you for this wonderful, wonderful day. In your good providence, we've assembled in this room once more, all together as a church family. And Father, we have planned a feast today, not just a feast from your word, but a physical feast to, to eat together. Enjoy the fellowship that we have missed so much and the friendship we've missed so much. Father, thank you for how you've cared for us, for how you've preserved us, for how you've kept our lives. How, Father, you have built a hedge around us, protecting us from disease, and at the same time, bringing healing to us when we were sick. We don't take this lightly. We don't take it for granted. So right now, Father, all of us, young and old, bow before you. And thank you for your goodness. We bow as your priests, Father. You've called us to be, this church to be a, a group of prophets that weekly and daily take the gospel out into all the parts of Fayette County. But you've also called us to be priests, to come before you, bringing Fayette County, bringing our neighbors in prayer. So we bow our... Right now. And. Father we pray for Earl Newsom, Who's home from the hospital. And we pray that father you would continue to bring healing to him. But more importantly. He knows you. We pray that father you will draw him close to you. And give him comfort. That is beyond. A physical comfort. But more than that a spiritual comfort. That is beyond imagination. So bless him, Father, we pray, and bless his family. Now, as we open your word, John Sartell is not able to teach so that it will make any difference in our lives, so that we'll be changed at the very core of our being. And we all need to be changed, whether we don't know you, Father, we we need to be changed for the first time, but most of the people here, Father, know you. We've been changed. But you have improved that changing. You've continued that changing. You, We've grown. We're not the same people that we were. We need you to teach us again this morning, Father. We pray that you would give us ears to hear you. Give us eyes to see you. Give us minds that understand. Give us hearts that yearn for you. And we leave here in a few minutes, Father. May we know that you have spoken. For the glory of Christ, we pray. Amen. If Jesus is not a charlatan, where's our wonder? What do you need to know about the context of this miracle? Before we come to the details of the miracle itself, what do you need to know? I want to tell you five things that will help you understand this miracle better. First, this is the only miracle by Jesus, except the resurrection, that is recorded in all four Gospels. Ask yourself how important is a resurrection? You say, John, it has to be in all four Gospels. That's at the apex. Well, this is the only other miracle recorded in all four of the Gospels. God did that by design. That's one. Two. There are significant antecedents to this miracle. Just prior to this, in chapter 5, we saw and heard Jesus make five audici- audacious claims to deity. In the first, he claimed to be one with the Father. And right after that, in John five nineteen, it's on your scripture sheet. So Jesus said to them, now pay attention to this. Truly, truly, I say to you. The son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the father doing. For whatever the father does, the son does likewise. He said, I'm only doing what the father does. He went on to say that the father raises the dead. And then next, he says, by my own voice, like the father I will raise the dead. I will speak and the dead will be raised. Now this feeding of the 5,000 goes back. It has an an antecedent that took place before. Do you know when it was? Do you know what the the antecedent is? What Jesus said, I only do what the father's doing. That's in John. And when John wrote chapter 6, he was thinking about what Jesus said. I only do what I saw my father do. what did the father do that was like the feeding of the 5,000? What happened to Israel in the wilderness? This huge throng, this million people. And God fed them. He fed them with manna. He fed them with quail. Jesus was repeating an Old Testament miracle by the Father, just like he said, he explained his other miracles that way. I'm only doing what the Father does. So this miracle has antecedents of Jesus saying in chapter 5, I learned these miracles from what the Father's done. The miracle reaches all the way back to Israel being miraculously fed by God in the Old Testament. Number three, there are significant addendums. That means what comes after. There are significant addendums to this miracle that Jesus puts before the disciples that we'll see in the rest of chapter 6. These powerful addendums reach down to this very day at Christ Presbyterian Church. We're going to see what he says in the remainder of the chapter about the feeding of the 5,000 speaks to us and is speaking to us right where we are. What are these? You come back next Sunday and we'll talk about them. Four, the fourth thing that you need to have to know the context of this. This was not a spur-of-the-moment miracle. You know, sometimes just Jesus encountered a blind man or here was a deaf man or a blind man asking to see. This was not a spur-of-the-moment miracle. Brought on by an urgent need. This was a planned miracle. Look at John 6, 5. Lifting up his eyes then and seeing that a large crowd was coming toward him, Jesus said to Philip, where are we to buy bread so that these people may eat? He said this to test him. For he himself, underline this, for he himself knew what he would do. He already had a plan. He knew how he was was going to feed these people. We will see in a few minutes that this miracle, as it's explained in Matthew and Mark and Luke, that this miracle actually took place toward the end of the afternoon. I think John begins his version earlier in the day as he sees the throng. I mean, this was not a group of 20 or 30 people walking down the road. This was 5,000 men. And it was earlier in the day. He sees the crowd coming and he, he says to Philip, who I believe was a businessman. He says to Philip, how will we feed these people? You see, they were in the boonies across the lake from the population centers. Jesus said, there's going to be a problem with food here. How will we feed these people? And what does John say? John says Jesus was just testing us, for he himself knew what he would do. It's a planned miracle. Fifthly, this is the fourth miracle that John records in his Gospels. I love this. Listen up. If you hadn't been listening, you say, well, I'll get down. To the, when I'll start listening when we get to the details of the miracle. Listen up right now. This is the fourth miracle of Jesus that John records. It's remarkably like the first miracle that he records. Remember the first miracle? Jesus brings 120 gallons of wine to a wedding feast. That's what happened. And here is a crowd of 5,000 people. By the way, it says five thousand men. We read that there were that the the text uses five thousand men. We know there was at least one child there. He had the loaves and the fish, but with women and children, there could have been ten thousand people. Thus, just just it's remarkably like the wedding feast. One hundred and twenty gallons of wine. Jesus feeds. 5,000 people at least probably 10,000 people. If you put these two miracles together, you can't help but to see the extravagance of Jesus. How would you like to have a friend that brought 120 gallons of wine to your wedding? I'd be sure he was on the list. The people were blown away. They wanted to make him king of Israel right there. So what are we saying in these five observations? This miracle is more than just a miracle in the moment. It's a sign, a miracle, a sign of an immense scope. It reaches far back into the past. It reaches down to this very day in the future. It has an immense, it is an immense miracle with an immeasurable meaning. Last week, after the service, I was talking to, to, to Blake, and I said, you know, I didn't intend to spend three sermons on John chapter 5. And he said, just think, what are you going to do with John chapter 6? And I. And what, what was Blake saying? He was saying, hey, Sartil, do you know what's in John 6? That's, that's what we're saying. With that understanding, I believe the miracle itself speaks to us of the extravagance of God. Now, extravagance can have a detrimental meaning. It can mean excessive, badly excessive, indulgent, wasteful. Generous to a fault, but it can also have a very powerful meaning concerning generosity. Lavish is a good word. The scripture says that God's love is lavished upon us. We sang about it in the first two hymns. Overabundant, luxurious. A powerful generosity. That's the sense in which we will see the word extravagant this morning. First, I want you to note as you look at this, that Jesus is extravagant in his commands to his disciples. I just—I love this. In the morning, they see this immense crowd converging on them. Jesus asks Philip the businessman, where are we to buy bread? so that these people may eat. Philip tells Jesus, it it would take 200 denarii. That's what I'm saying. He understood what it was going to take. 200 denarii. A denarii, a single denarii, was one day's wages. It was going to take 200 days wages just to provide bread for these people. Notice he didn't say anything about meat. Just to provide bread. And it would have only been, he said, a bit of bread. A bite of bread. Now this, Think about it. This was an unusual question for Jesus to ask the disciples. When when someone had come blind and wanted to be healed, Jesus never turned to the disciples and said, what are we going to do about this blind man? How are we going to heal him? And yet here he turns and faces the disciples and he says, puts the weight on them. How are we going to feed these people? But look what happens. He becomes more explicit. Look at Luke chapter 9 on your scripture sheet. This is Luke's description. Now the day began to wear away. And the twelve came and said to him, Send the crowd away to go into the surrounding villages and countryside to find lodging and get provisions. For we're here in a desolate place. Now notice Jesus said early, How are we going to feed them? Well, now they're answering that. And they come back. And he said, hey, Jesus, let these people go so that, let them find their own food, Jesus. That's what they're saying. And look what Jesus replied to them. But he said to them, you give them something to eat. You give them something to eat. Jesus answers by putting the responsibility on them. You give them something to eat. Just imagine that. You're Matthew or Nathaniel, Philip or whoever standing there. And Jesus, whom you believe is the son of God and the Messiah of Israel, Jesus turns to you and there's this huge crowd out here. And Jesus says, you feed them, you do it. Now, we know all of us have had parties in our homes and we know what it takes in time, in money, in effort to feed just 20 people or 30 people. Or 50 people. Do you see it? Jesus just looks at him. He said, here's seven to 10,000 people. You feed them. It would be like saying that to you today. He is extravagant in his commands to his disciples. Now, this is not unusual. Before, Think about it this way. Before he ascended in glory, the disciples are assembled. He's he's going home. And what does Matthew say in Matthew 28, 19? Go therefore, is this what he's he's talking to? He's talking to Matthew, a tax collector. He's talking to at least four fishermen. And these are ordinary Israelites. And he says, go therefore and make disciples of all nations. Not, Not just Jerusalem, not just Samaria. All nations. Go to Rome. Go to Spain. Go to India. You're going to the ends of the earth. Guys, you will take my gospel to the ends of the earth. You're looking at this. You're there on the scene and you're watching. And you're saying, anyone taking bets on this? I'd sure like to bet against Jesus. They're not going to do this. There's no way. Look at this motley crew. That's what he said to them. Weak as they were. And he does that with all of us. Extravagant commands. Whoever we are in this room this morning, God has called us with extravagant commands. That's the gospel. He has faced each one of us and said, you love me more than you do your wife. You love me more than you do your husband. To you mothers, he says, do you love me more than you do your children? He says, do you love me more than you do your grandchildren? I never forget a man sitting in my office with his family and his children were to be examined before the church. And the whole family was there. This was the week before. And I I asked one of the children. I said, who do you love first? Your mother, your dad, or Jesus? She said, Jesus. And I said, where did we learn that? And she quoted the scripture. And I turned to the mother and father who had been Christians. They were joining our church. They were coming from another church. And they and I looked at the two of them and said, Do you love Jesus more than you do? Your children. And they were hesitant. They weren't like the little girl. They were hesitant. And the man looked at me and said, You've got to be kidding. That was the first time he had ever been faced by Jesus. It actually says that in the Gospels. That we're to love him more than we do our children. That's an extravagant command. He says, love your neighbors as yourself. This is not just taking your neighbor a cherry pie. I'm gonna take and put my put my neighbor's garbage can out. He's out of town. That's not what this is talking about. Love your neighbors yourself. That's a tough command. And then he says, "Love your enemies. Try that one on." <laughs> Some of you think tithing is really uh, There's no way you know that I'll ever be able to tithe. That's just too much. I can't see giving ten percent of my income to Jesus. <laughs> you think Jesus just wants ten percent of your income? You are badly mistaken. He wants it all. He wants everything. I believe God is calling Christ Presbyterian Church with extravagant commands. He doesn't give 25 acres like this for us just to be some paltry church. Out in the boonies. I don't know what he's going to do. But it's going to be significant. Always is. I think that we'll look at Jesus commanding the disciples, you feed them. And like them, we'll say, We can't do that. We can't do what you called us to do. Years ago, a young lady named Faye Chancellor sat in my office, some of you from independent. Know her. This was right after she had graduated from Vanderbilt. She was brilliant. Had a degree, something to do with math. Um, When I asked her her plans, I expected her to talk about a job in Memphis. And instead, I heard this. God has called me to be a missionary behind the Iron Curtain. And I looked at her and I thought, didn't say it, but I said, yeah, right inside. Like that's going to happen. I mean, this is when there was a real Iron Curtain. This is when if you were going by, take the gospel behind Iron Curtain, it was like going as a spy. It took several years. I watched her. and She became a missionary behind the Iron Curtain. Quiet. Shy. She's been a missionary now in Poland for 35 or 40 years. God had given her an extravagant command. Jesus is extravagant in his commands to his disciples. Secondly, Jesus is extravagant in his acceptance of what is given. Look at verse 8. One of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, There's a boy here who has five barley loaves and two fish. But what are they for so many? Jesus said, Have the people sit down. And there was much grass in the place. So the men sat down, about 5,000 in number. Jesus then took the loaves. And when he had given thanks, he distributed them to those who were seated. So also the fish. As much as they wanted you do realize that Jesus didn't need this boy's lunch. He he could have said, let the boy keep his lunch. It's all right. You're not going to believe what I'm going to do. He didn't need the boy's lunch to do it. He could have made light of that insignificant amount of food. But Jesus was magnanimous with this small boy's gift. Taking the five loaves. And the two fish and looking up to heaven, he gave thanks for them. He took them and he lifted them up and said, thank you, Father. Sometimes we look at the callings of heaven. And then we look at our feeble resources, our feeble gifts. And we think, well, we're feeble. This is nothing. We think God is so huge that he couldn't use our It just doesn't mean anything. I can only give $5 a week. And God owns the universe. This is a pittance. It doesn't mean anything to him. Jesus delights. Bring that boy here. Let me have it. By the way, barley bread was the cheapest bread. It was the poor man's bread. He's extravagant in his acceptance of them. You would have thought 50 chariots of food had been delivered. Father, thank you for this wonderful homemade barley bread. Thank you for these two fish. Jesus is extravagant in his commands to his disciples. He's extravagant in his acceptance of what is given. Thirdly, Jesus is extravagant in his provision. Look at verse 11. Then he took the loaves, and when he had given thanks, he distributed them to those who were seated. So also the fish, as much as they wanted. And when they had eaten, they fill, filled. Did you see that? They, they were filled up. They got seconds. He told his disciples, Gather up the leftover fragments, that nothing may be lost. So they gathered them up and filled 12 baskets with fragments from the five barley loaves left by those who had eaten. Jesus exploded Two fish and five loaves into thousands and thousands of fish and thousands of loaves. Twelve baskets were left over. Each disciple had to was faced with the impossible. They had a ton left over. They had the extravagance of Jesus in their possession. They were full to the brim. This is a wonderful picture of what God is like, people. Look at the universe, the world around, everything shouts to us of His extravagance. I used to wonder when I was in Bible school and in Sunday school, why did God make a universe? it has been so simple. Here's the earth, here's the moon, here's the sun. That's all. God couldn't do that, He's too huge. He's too huge. Not just a solar system, not just one galaxy as vast as the Milky Way galaxy is. Millions of galaxies, which are thousands of light years apart. You look at the universe, you see the extravagance of God. Look at the earth, the Rockies, the Himalayas, the great ice of the North Pole and Antarctica, the vastness of the Pacific and the Atlantic Oceans. The teeming life. Miles down. Darkest part of the ocean. Look at the tropical fish and great whales and the tiny shrimp. The earth shouts to us. The extravagance of God. (laughs) Think of all the different cheeses, breads, meats, vegetables, fruits. Not some some paste. I remember I was watching a sci-fi movie one time and they were traveling in space. And you know what they had to eat? They they went to this vending type machine and they bought a tube that looked like a tube of toothpaste, and you you use squeeze the nutrient out to eat. That's not what God did. He's thousands of different foods to be tasted by thousands of different taste buds. The earth shouts to us of the extravagance of God. What did the psalmist say? We came giving our tithes and offerings this morning with Psalm 103. Praise the Lord, O my soul, all my inmost being. Praise his holy name. Praise the Lord, O my soul. Forget not all, circle all of his benefits. So we must not forget what the Lord, that the Lord has been extravagant with us on your worst day. When we are so apt to complain. We're bathed in God's extravagance. You see, the universe, the earth, the food, as wonderful as it is, it's pale in comparison to his greatest extravagance. The abundance that God has given us in creation cost him nothing. It was by fiat. He spoke and it was done. When Jesus gave his life at Calvary for our sins, When he came, God became flesh in the incarnation. It was not by fiat. It was cost. It was pain. The father gave up his son. The son gave up his life. The extravagance is seen in the incarnation. And it's seen at that cross. That's his greatest extravagance. Next week we'll have, oh, well, that'll be glorious. We're back and we have communion together like this. We come to his table. That's extravagance. Well, let's come back to the title. Maybe you think I forgot all about it. John's getting a load. Maybe he forgot about the title. Well, let's come back to the title. If Jesus is not a charlatan, if he's not a deceiver, Where's our wonder? Is it that you believe he's really a deceiver? Maybe that's what we believe. Maybe that's what happened to our wonder that while, well, well, he was just deceiving, isn't it? Jesus was mere man; he wasn't the Son of God. I listened to R.C. Sproul preach a message on this text, and he spoke about how modern theological liberalism explains away this miracle. That's how they explain away all the miracles. We've talked about this almost. Every Sunday that we've been in John, because we're seeing Jesus perform and do these miracles. And there's a large part of the church that came along with their higher criticism. It's really quite low criticism. And said, well, you know, God couldn't become flesh. That's silly. That's antique. That's myth. And so Jesus couldn't have done all these miracles. And they explained them away. And R.C. talked about, I was curious to what R.C. would say, he talked about when he first heard this. I'm going to tell you where he heard it in a minute. But he was talking about what this minister had said and about this specific miracle. And I was anxious because I had heard the same thing when I was in college for the first time. And uh, my professor said that, you know, Jesus wasn't the son of God. These miracles really didn't happen. Well, what happened in the feeding of the 5,000? Well, the feeding of the 5,000, you know that little boy that showed up and had the loaves and the fish? He said, you share that with your neighbor here. And there were lots of people there that had planned and they brought their own food, a picnic type thing, and they just shared all their food together. With each other. It was sort of a ethical miracle. Brotherly love did this. And then there was another explanation that, that Jesus and the disciples had this cave, a lot of caves in that area, and they had stored a lot of food back there. <laughs> and so the disciples got in a cave and they handed the food out to Jesus. And you know, Jesus in his robes was just producing all this food like this. Now I'm telling you, I'm sitting in a college classroom uh, and in a church school, in a Presbyterian school, Presbyterian college, and his professor is saying that. And I'm sitting there and saying, really? Now let's see. You believe that's really what happened. He stood in front of the cave and they're handing his food out. It, it takes more a heck of a lot more faith to believe that than to believe that Jesus just did it. that's foolish now let me tell you where RC heard it. it was the same thing I was say you know it, it was like I was listening I, I was listening to my professor I'm not going to name it I, I was listening to him teach it was like I was back in 1962 listening to him say this You see, R.C. heard it, but he heard it before he went to college. He was like some of you junior high students here. He heard it when he was in junior high school from a minister in his Presbyterian church in a liberal denomination, by the way, which we left if you're busy. And that's where he heard it. And as I listened to that sermon, I said, I'm going to tell the people Sunday morning. It's one thing to hear it in a seminary classroom, in a church school. That's bad enough. But to hear it in your home church where the gospel is supposed to be preached, and that's where R.C. grew up. He didn't hear enough of the gospel to be saved in that church. Ruling elders, you take note. When this kind of teaching goes on, it will come from the teaching elders in the church. It will come from the ministers in the church. We were once a member of the nomination when ministers came in and said it in the pulpit like R.C.'s minister did. And the elders didn't stand up and say, that's enough, you stand down. I pray that the elders of Christ Presbyterian Church, I know the three we have now, if I'd gotten up and said something like that, It would have been a good thing Mike Atkinson wasn't here. Blake and Bill would have come up and sort of gently escorted me out. Mike would have just nailed me. That's all. I'd be lying in the floor. People, hear this. But you know, those explanations have one problem. The explanations that professor made and that minister made. You see, that five to 10,000 people, they weren't naive and they were completely blown away. <laughs> they wouldn't have been blown away by simply sharing lunches. Look what we did. They would have not been blown away by the disciples handing out food in the cave. You see, if you say that, you're saying Jesus is a deceiver. And by the way, that's where you've got to land. If you don't believe, you can't come around and say he was this great, ethical, wonderful teacher if he spent all of his life deceiving the world around him with these tricks, with this magic. They wouldn't have been blown away with the disciples handing out food. John writes over and over again, I'm telling you these things, that you might believe he's a son of God. He doesn't prove he's a son of God by simply sharing lunches. If he's not a charlatan, if he's not a deceiver, Christ Presbyterian Church, where is our wonder? We have an extravagant creator, an extravagant sustainer, An extravagant Redeemer. Amen. And now we'll put that in song as we sing together how deep the Father's love for us.